0: Thanks for joining me again on New Books in Military History. Uh, With me today is Brian Sandberg, who's a professor at Northern Illinois University outside of Chicago. And he's the author in 2010 of a book entitled Warrior Pursuits that covers uh, the noble culture of combat in the early 17th century. So thank you for joining me today, Brian. Thanks for having me on, Jay. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this particular book?
1: Okay. Well, I'm a historian of uh, early modern Europe and the Mediterranean, and um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Texas at Austin, and there I took classes on a variety of subjects, uh, but also war and society, and I became really fascinated with uh, the history of uh, early modern Uh, warfare, Uh, even though I was taking uh, courses with a historian who was actually an Africanist. He did uh, modern uh, African history, but explored uh, the deep past of African military history uh, using oral history methods. So I became really interested in in the earlier uh, history of warfare. And then when it was time to head off to grad school, I went to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, And one of the reasons why I chose that program was because you had uh, John Lynn there and also Jeffrey Parker at the time, uh, who were both doing exciting work on uh, early modern uh, European military history. So it seemed like the right program for me. And um, I went off to grad school thinking in terms of uh, working on the military history of the French Revolution, in particular the Vendée Civil War, I found really fascinating because I I found that civil conflicts – Uh, Were less treated uh, outside of the American Civil War uh, than international wars. So I was really interested in the Vendée Civil War, this uh, uh, conflict in the western part of France during the French Revolution, uh, in which uh, peasants uh, and nobles, uh, often who were uh, Catholic, battled against uh, the French revolutionary forces, and it was a really bloody conflict. Uh, But once I got to University of Illinois and started taking classes with both uh, Lynn and Parker. Uh, I really became very interested also in the military revolution, uh, which was then a a big debate uh, in the early 90s uh, and became fascinated with uh, the European wars of religion, uh, which coincided with the arguments about the military revolution uh, and just got sucked back in time uh, to the late 16th, early 17th century – where i found a lot of the same issues that i was already interested in civil conflict uh, religion involved in warfare religious warfare uh and so i left behind uh the french revolution and and settled on studying the european Revo- the european wars of religion uh through uh the perspectives of the military revolution uh debate and what was being called at that time the new military
0: history Right. Um, what, one of the things I found fascinating in the book is, about the book is precisely this, thing, this uh, focus on civil conflict because mm-hmm. it does allow you – I mean the, the complexity of the, the social and the political – not only the political environment, which is there when you're talking about international war, but, but really the social environment. Uh, as well, and the, and the kind of local and regional fo- focus that you get to really allows you to tease out some of these cultural elements that you're interested in looking at about people's relationships, ideas about war and conflict and religion, and um, it, it's really fruitful, I think.
1: Absolutely, And when I first started working on this project, I I really saw it as a way of sort of testing out some of the theories about uh, the military revolution concept. Uh, And I was intending to use methods primarily of uh, social history uh, in investigating this. But the further I got into the project, the more I found cultural uh, methods to be more useful in in understanding these civil conflicts. Uh, And the focus on the military revolution debate uh, receded into the background. There are still some parts of the book that do respond to that military revolution debate, but I found much more interesting the dynamics of how nobles uh, were involved in organizing uh, all the warfare in this period. And another thing that that surprised me was that the, all the literature on this period uh, really deals with the rise of the state. This, this is the beginnings of uh, absolutism, according to many uh, histories of uh, early modern France. Um, and so when you look at warfare in this period, it's treated as a sort of an impediment to the rise of the absolutist state. Uh, and all the historiography was really focused on the relationship between Paris and the provinces, very court-centered, very government-centered. Uh, and instead, I found all sorts of pervasive civil conflict going on out in the provinces, which was being either ignored by this state-centered literature or treated as sort of minor conflicts that were really irrelevant to the greater narrative of the rise of the state. Uh, And so the cultural history methods helped me find uh, much more serious military conflict going on uh, on this regional level.
0: So you can't, I don't think you ever call it this, um, and I'm, Your sources probably didn't lend themselves exactly to this kind of analysis, but it's almost the way uh, the history of everyday life in a more contemporary context complicates stories about modernity or or, these grand narratives that we tell ourselves because you're able to get down into the provinces in which you chose uh, Languedoc and Guyenne for your study because of sources or – was well,
1: partly because of sources, but it 's also because most of the conflict was going on in these regions uh, the 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 serious the most serious and most sustained uh, civil conflict during the 16-teens, 1620s, into the early 1630s, uh, is really going on in in these areas. So then the question became well, why? Why why are these particular regions so uh, filled with conflict? Uh, What's going on there? How do we explain this? And uh, the idea of a resistance of these local areas against a centralizing state had been trotted out by some historians back in the 1970s, and uh, the more I got into the sources, I didn't find that convincing at all. Mm. And the role of the nobles became really key uh, in understanding all this violence as as I saw it. Um, And there again, the notion of nobles within this narrative of the rise of the absolutist state became really key uh, because nobles – have been seen by many absolutist historians uh, as being just impediments to the centralizing state. Uh, They are uh, frivolous. They are, uh, you know, focused on their own um, self-interest. And and sort of uh, just playing around in court culture, uh, any sort of serious military activity was not considered to be something related to the nobles. Um, And so the absolutist historians were really uh, going along with Norbert Elias's famous theory of a civilizing process that uh, that uh, the absolutist state was successful in taming uh, the nobles, domesticating them uh, during the 17th century. Uh, and this would end up by the late 17th century, according to Norbert Elias, uh, ending up with uh, nobles who were just living at the court at Versailles, who were completely separated from uh, any sort of bellicose activities uh, and uh, just, you know, gambling and uh, uh, having sex and doing other, you know, frivolous uh, activities at the at the court, as he saw it. Um, what I found was that nobles were deeply engaged uh, in warfare, and there was no sign of them giving up these activities. Um, so something different had to be going on uh, in the 17th century uh, with uh, the growth of the state. It wasn't uh, a marginalization of the nobles, uh, but somehow nobles changing uh, the ways in which they were participating in warfare, uh, certainly not disengaging uh, from military activity.
0: So one of the things that um, you didn't mention specifically, but it's implied in your comments there, is that you really put the lie to the notion of the nobles' economic lack of sophistication. In other words, you you portray them in in, um, significant detail as – Being the masters of these complex economic engines on their estates, um, you know, through trade, through uh, wine, through olive oil, you know, not just simply agricultural products either, but um, systems of credit and finance that were ultimately necessary to fund the kinds of warfare that they were practicing in. Exactly.
1: Uh, A lot of historians uh, traditionally have portrayed uh, nobles as the landed nobility. Uh, They see them as uh, just on their estates. Uh, They're uh, dealing with agricultural uh, economies. Uh, They're dealing with their peasants as workers uh, on those estates and and see them only in those terms financially. I found that nobles were uh, very active, very mobile. They have multiple properties in this uh, period. Many of them have residences in cities. Uh, They spend a lot of their time in cities, and as such, uh, they're involved in lots of credit mechanisms uh, in this period. They're they're raising loans. They're giving loans. They give loans to the state uh, as well as to uh, regional bodies, uh, governmental bodies, uh, and they also are capable of raising enough funds uh, through a combination of different types of, of financial mechanisms to raise their own small armies in this period. And sometimes these are quite significant. We, You can talk about even armies of 10,000 men uh, raised by individual powerful nobles uh, at times. So this is quite significant uh, when you talk about the waging of civil warfare, uh, because civil warfare is often waged, at least in the early modern period, by a series of uh, smaller field armies operating simultaneously. And if nobles can raise these uh, forces themselves, uh, they're not de- Dependent on the state uh, to raise taxes for them uh, in order to authorize them uh, to raise these forces. So it's a very dynamic form of civil conflict, in part because the nobles are capable of using all of these credit mechanisms, uh, which involve both um, loans. Uh, but also um, uh, economic relationships through the towns, so merchant activity. uh, Their agrarian uh, estates, too, are also contributing to this. Um, And then appropriation of taxation, appropriation of money, pillage economy, all of this
0: goes together uh, to allow this sort of uh, warfare to go on. And and the other aspect there is that for all that these um – uh, conflicts may have been relatively small-scale. I mean, you do mention several of them do um, snowball and become very significant in terms mm-hmm. of the number of people involved, but l- most of them are small-scale, but they're still very complex, involving sieges and raids and and pitched battles and blockades and all kinds of um, different varieties of, of warfare. Absolutely. I mean, there are often um,
1: dozens of sieges going on simultaneously across southern France in this period, um, and you start to realize some of the patterns here when you look at which communities are being targeted and why. So nobles are not just you know randomly raising forces here; uh, they're they're raising forces in order to uh, promote certain uh, politics and uh, and military aims here, and many of those coincide with religious. Uh, factors. So you have uh, southern France divided between uh, Catholics and Calvinists uh, in this period. And the further I got into the research, the more I was, started to realize that these two provinces are really the areas, when we're talking about Guienne and Languedoc here, uh, these are the two provinces that have the highest percentages of Huguenot or French Calvinists. Uh, in them, So this is really a continuation, as I see it, of the French wars of religion. The famous Edict of Nantes in 1598 uh, uh, did not really succeed in halting uh, religious violence. Instead, this continues uh, throughout the first three decades of the 17th century uh, with localized uh, warfare between Catholics and Calvinists and often over control of access to communities. So a lot of these sieges uh, are attempts to control uh, the population and to control access to space for missionaries and preachers of either side of this religious divide. Uh, And these conflicts are are very, very serious if you consider the implications for the ability to attempt to convert uh, one side or another uh, in this as a religious conflict or at least religiously infused conflict.
0: One of the points that your book makes very well is the the kind of um, political acumen that was required to to master this situation for these nobles the to because of the complexity of the the context of civil conflict and w- involving religion and patronage networks and relationships with the with the royal state um, you got the sense that these people had to be on their toes constantly you know managing finances managing relationships uh, managing soldiers and and um, Uh, It was just an incredibly complex environment. Absolutely. Uh, I think sometimes today we think of
1: um, military officers uh, as having an exclusive role. Uh, We think in terms of their rank and we think think in terms of certain duties that are attached to said rank. Um, You can't really understand early modern warfare if you take this sort of modern notion of officership and just drop it down uh, in the 17th century. Uh, Nobles are nobles first. Uh, This is part of their being. They conceive of nobility as uh, dividing them off from uh, the rest of society, the rest of 90% of society or more uh, that are commoners. And so if they are involved in military activity, uh, defining themselves as warriors, then they see that as an activity that they're engaged in. Uh, But it's not exclusive uh, to their being. So they don't think of themselves as military Officers, even though that's one role they play, they are also politicians. They also have a titles, and they need to uphold their uh, their noble titles uh, and their dignity. Uh, they also have lots of practical things that they have to engage in, even if they're acting as military commanders. Uh, they have to raise money continually, so they might have to uh, leave their army or their their troops for a time and head off to a city to handle uh, credit problems. Uh, They also have to maintain their own uh, properties, uh, which are often far-flung. They might have to run off to the royal court to negotiate with uh, other nobles or with the king, uh, wherever they are. Uh, So uh, you have to see nobles in this period, not just as military officers then, uh, but as um, warriors, who are nobles uh, and who are also engaged in all of these different activities, basically wearing multiple hats at the same time. So it makes it hard to pin down uh, their motives when they're doing um, military operations because military operations are always dovetailing with negotiations. And here again, there's a real disconnect between our our modern notions of warfare often. We we think of following Clausewitz that that war is a continuation of politics By other means. We think of diplomacy as one uh, aspect uh, of politics, and then war is is separate. It goes on in between uh, these periods of politics. Not for the nobles in this period. They conduct diplomacy constantly within a, a civil conflict uh, at the same time that they're co- conducting operations. Uh, and this helps explain some of the reasons why nobles are sometimes changing sides during civil conflicts, because uh, the politics are continually changing. So it's very complex to get into this uh, as a researcher and, and as a historian dealing with the archives here very hard to decipher uh, the motivations of individual nobles uh, as they are simultaneously waging war and and negotiating.
0: One role that they play that you omitted in this discussion, but that you, you actually begin the book with, is their role as managers of a family oh, and, yeah. a, and really a lineage, as so a family mm-hmm. across multiple generations. In some ways, that seemed to me like, uh, their in their minds, their primary duty uh, was to successfully manage you know the the family the notion of heirs and inheritance and the maintenance of those you know of the as you say the maintenance of the concept of nobility mm-hmm. in in that lineage over time and that you know it seemed like a lot of what they were doing whether it was economic or military or in terms of political alliances was aimed ultimately at preserving that um That role for themselves. Oh, absolutely. And one of
1: the things I think that's fascinating about the ways in which the nobles are uh, mobilizing uh, their own family networks is that uh, we often take families as a given. And very clearly, especially in a, in a conflict um, that is civil in nature, you, you have divided families, of course. And many of the families in this period were divided not just by political differences or you know, disputes over inheritance or disputes over property. Uh, many families are actually divided religiously, too. And there's lots of conversions that go on in this period, too. So families are not stable uh, during the French wars of religion. Um, and so... Actually dealing with protecting a family's patrimony, uh, uh, organizing one's family uh, as as a military unit at times, which nobles definitely do, uh, this is a problem. Uh, for nobles to deal with. Rather than just a a source of strength, uh, they have to be active managers of the family networks if they're going to be successful at all. So I think you're right in pointing out that the the family is is very important uh, to the nobles here. Uh, And the household, the notion of the noble household with the the patriarch, male patriarch at the head of that household uh, is very crucial, and many households are destroyed as effective uh, family units uh, during the fighting in these conflicts.
0: So, and I think also as a as a cultural history, you have important things to say about um, some of the ways in which this this noble warrior class looked at the world in terms of in terms of honor. Um, uh, well, honor in, honor in particular, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is the first thing that sort of pops out.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, This is one of the uh, notions that I was able to uh, really develop using uh, cultural history methods uh, was looking at a range of different uh, what I call bonds of nobility, ways in which nobles were able to construct ideas of community uh, in the provinces. And honor is one of the most important of these. Uh, But it's not – Uh, again a given Um, some historians have taken honor uh, to be a sort of coherent concept. Uh, and early modern uh, French nobles are often assumed to be uh, doing everything on the basis of their, their their motivations by honor. If you think of uh, French nobles, often people think, first of all, of the Three Musketeers uh, by Alexandre Dumas, the film versions of it. And uh, they think of nobles as duelists, first and foremost. And certainly many uh, French nobles indeed engaged in dueling in this period. Uh, what's been forgotten is that uh, that's really a small part of their engagement with violence. Uh, the ac- their activities in civil warfare really dwarf uh, their engagement uh, in dueling, even though dueling culture is certainly part of the violence uh, in this period. So, honor, uh, rather than being a sort of simplistic motor uh, for interpersonal violence, I find to be a really complex and multi layered uh, concept, which can both fuel conflict within noble culture, but they can also provide a sense of community uh, for nobles, a sense of brotherhood even uh, for male nobles who are engaged in civil conflict. So I look at several different ways in which uh, honor culture operates, uh, and it has uh, dimensions that relate to uh, the notions of of dignity and quality, uh, the the nobles' position within uh, the the hierarchy of noble culture, but also to their religious activities. So a, a notion of Sanctity is there, uh, but it can be very competitive, a notion of precedence, and every time that nobles uh, find themselves together, whether that's on the battlefield uh, or at a church service uh, or an entry into a town, uh, they are put into order for their entry into that space, whether it's uh, you know riding on horseback, uh, the position of their units on the battlefield, uh, or their, their place of seat, seating uh, in the church, these are all ordered based on precedence. So they have constant competitions over uh, this sort of precedence, uh, and this does relate to the civil conflict too, not just to dueling, which some other historians had already recognized.
0: Yeah, I think that the focus on dueling is another aspect, like the notion of the sort of simplistic landed uh, aristocracy, the notion of a a simple economy, uh, breaking apart that notion of dueling also – uh, clarifies or or alerts us to the the complexity and the seriousness of warfare, right? So if you imagine people as just duelists, that's a way of saying they're they're not serious warriors; they just play at this, right? But you get down into the details and show us um, the seriousness of these conflicts. Absolutely, and um, I think it, it hasn't really been recognized uh,
1: fully yet, and and I don't really had I didn't really have the time in this study to develop this. A particular point further, but I think that a lot of the dueling in this particular period uh, is very closely connected to the civil conflict um, so that you have uh, political rivals, military rivals often uh, dueling uh, when they get opportunities to do so. Many of those opportunities occur during the brief moments of peace. Um, you have a series of truces and pieces during this period um, and those allow opportunities for nobles to socialize across Cross, you know the different uh, boundaries of their um, their military uh, organizations um, and I, I should add at this point that you know one of the things that's really fascinating about the civil conflict in this period is that you have some warfare going on every year in this period. Uh, the armies are not permanent though so one of the things that goes on is in these brief moments of peace well, the armies are demobilized. Almost every winter, uh, field armies are demobilized. Not all the troops go home, but many of them do. And then every spring, you have uh, a reignition of some sort of conflict at some point uh, during the year, often early in the year. Uh, and across uh, southern France, then, you have forces that start to remobilize. So there's this constant pattern of mobilization, demobilization going on. It's never complete. Uh, but when you have you know, partial demobilization is going on, uh, then nobles start to socialize o- across the bounds. They're no longer fighting at those moments. Uh, and those moments of socialization also are very dangerous. That's where you can have uh, some of these dueling uh, opportunities break out, uh, especially when nobles are congregating in cities uh, together. So, a very war filled uh, period here. Uh, very violent period, and so dueling could help uh, highlight even further uh, the civil conflict uh, if somebody wanted to go through and, and try to research those duels um, systematically.
0: Hmm. So I think that's one of the opportunities that your focus on civil conflict creates is the um, th- that there isn't such a stark distinction between war and peace, that you're, you can maintain a focus on on military aspects and military culture across across a significant span of time, because you don't have a clear kind of demarcation. That you, I mean, obviously this is not true in all cases, but that you might have more frequently in international conflicts where there's a start and an end.
1: A- absolutely, and um, I'm not the only historian to see the French Wars of Religion uh, as being these long conflicts. But there's several historians now, along with myself, who really see uh, 1598 not as the end point of the French. Wars of Religion, but instead see them stretching all the way to 1629 or even a little bit after that. Uh, so, if you take that longer-term uh, view of the French Wars of Religion, and stretching from around 1562 to 1629, uh, then you can see that there are many uh, pieces. Uh, Some of them are briefly effective for six months or even a year. Uh, Most of them are relatively ineffective, uh, more like truces, uh, and then they break down again. Uh, There are also lots of localized uh, truces that will come into play for a brief period of time and then break down. So if you can see, all of this period uh, is involving low-level civil conflict, in, in regions across France, uh, then you can really look at the intersections of war and peace as, as being a constant here. Mm-hmm.
0: So one, one of the central concepts that, um, that you discuss in the book is this idea of the culture of revolt that existed among these nobles. And I'll ask you to um, elaborate on that a little bit, but maybe also clear up a question that probably arises more from my ignorance than any uh, failure of your book, and that is, how is it possible for a Catholic noble to revolt? In the sense that, you know, in this conflict, isn't it always – it seems like it ought to always be the Calvinists who are identified as the rebels who are, uh, you know, in, in, um, in opposition to the Catholic king.
1: Uh, that, that's a really good question. Um, I think that what I'm trying to get at with uh, the idea of a cultural revolt um, is the notion that revolt is a way of doing uh, religious politics in this period. Um, and the notion of a of a, of a describing it as a culture of revolt uh, is is a subtle uh, way of responding to uh, another historian's uh, way of looking at revolt uh, in the early modern period in France, and this, this is the famous historian uh, Arlette Juana uh, who is not uh, translated very much uh, into English, and so uh, certainly French historians know her work very well, but a lot of other early modern uh, historians don't know her work, but she... The Describes a duty to revolt. She sees uh, early modern French nobles as uh, doing politics uh, in response to uh, the state. She sees uh, no- French nobles as motivated uh, to revolt uh, when there are times of threat to the notion of a mixed monarchy. Um, basically the, the idea of the French constitution in this period, as they talked about it, uh, was that the, the king, uh, would rule through consultation with the nobles. Uh, and so she sees this notion of a constitutional duty as being the, the major reason why nobles will engage in revolts throughout the 16th century and 17th century, um, I find it to be less of this sort of constitutional duty uh, that's motivating nobles and much more localized religious politics. So in this sense, ca- even Catholic nobles can be motivated to go into revolt uh, or to take up arms, uh, which is the way in which they talk about revolt. To take up arms uh, for a cause is is what they consider revolt to be. So when, they, when Catholic nobles take up arms – They do so uh, because they see that the king or the king's ministers are not being tough enough uh, on Calvinists within uh, their society. Many of the hardline Catholics see uh, Calvinists as heretics in this period, uh, and certainly Calvinists also uh, see Catholics uh, as heretics in the period. So there, there are a lot of real steep tensions here. But it's possible for either militant Catholics or militant Calvinists Uh, to raise arms in order to pursue their religious political goals uh, and to do so through uh, armed revolt. When they do revolt, though, they don't see themselves as in revolt against the king. They always claim to be doing something else. They're in revolt against the king's ministers. That's a classic sort of excuse uh, in uh, early modern French society. Uh, But they can also claim to be uh, defending their church uh, or defending uh, religious orders for the uh, Catholic nobles. This is very important. They see themselves as defending uh, the Jesuits and the Capuchin, the other um, monks and friars who are active in trying to convert uh, Calvinists in this area. And so that can be a reason uh, for them to rule. So there are a number of different reasons then uh, that nobles can articulate uh, as uh, motives uh, for their taking up of arms in this period. So the cultural revolt concept tries to then unpack, well, how do they actually uh, justify uh, the taking up of arms? How do they mobilize forces? And then how do they form armies and actually try to um, you know, carry out military operations uh, in order to pursue
0: those uh, goals? so that, So rather than being the concept of a duty to revolt identifies it as a kind of defense of aristocratic liberty against the royal state, again with this this notion of a of an encroaching absolutist state, whereas seeing it as a culture of revolt and looking at that context in which the state just becomes one element that 's manipulated to further a particular cause. Um, uh, again, kind of complicates this notion of, of a kind of, of, of absolutism and, and the, um, what, do you, what was I going to say, the, the kind of weakness of aristocracy mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the face of that advance.
1: Exactly. And um, e- even though my uh, book does not have an operational history within it, um, I, I tried to pay uh, particular attention to what was going on uh, with the military operations here. I think the military operations reveal – Uh, what some of the nobles' motivations are. They certainly published pamphlets justifying their action. They wrote letters to the king, to the ministers, to other nobles justifying their actions too. So, I mean, I try to dissect what they say there too. But if you look at their targets uh, of their military campaigns, you know, which cities and towns do they uh, besiege? Which which other nobles do they go after? Uh, How do they pursue uh, military operations within the civil wars uh, that are going on? Uh, I think that this helps reveal uh, that their uh, their aims are not uh, to try to you know preserve uh, a sense of the Constitution uh, or to um, you know to oppose the centralizing state. It's it's instead trying to uh, trying to control local uh, politics and local religious sites. Uh, and And they do this through their military operations so uh, that 's a way in which I think that uh, the operational uh, military history uh, can be very very useful uh, if you look at it through uh, cultural history methods because even operational history uh, is is great at revealing uh, the motives of commanders who are the ones of course directing these operations
0: well that's that 's an excellent point and i wouldn 't play down too much you know the the relative or excuse me i wouldn't play up too much the relative lack of oper, of real operational history say because you do tell us a great deal about the the nature of armies how you know, how they're recruited how they're financed how they travel uh, you know uh, lots of really great details that might be considered you know a contribution to operational history f- um for increasing our understanding of that. Oh, well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I just meant that uh, in terms of dealing with that
1: operational history, rather than trying to uh, go through and do a narrative. Uh, of the military operations, so that one could uh, understand year by year exactly what operations were going on, I took a thematic approach in this in this uh, book and tried to expose some of the patterns uh, that emerged from those operations,
0: uh, even though the operations themselves are, are are fascinating. right more kind of case studies and episodes mm-hmm. that illustrate your your points yeah, exactly. I was struck by one of the insights you have about the siege warfare in that particular context, and how how fraught it could be, and the fact that that it was in fact they tended to be speedy operations because you never knew um, from which direction the next attack was going to come, where relief might come from, because you're you're in a sea of of conflicting loyalties and and. Um, conflicting military groups. Yeah,
1: this for me was absolutely fascinating because uh, I think a lot of the literature on civil conflict uh, in English language, and especially published here in the United States, has been really colored by the experience of the American Civil War. Uh, which is in many ways not a typical civil war. I mean, the notion of a, a sectional conflict, and I, I know that there, there are some uh, fuzzy edges around uh, the Confederacy in, in the American Civil War, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the American Civil War being this sectional conflict uh, is very, very different from most civil wars which have interpenetrations of different populations. So in southern France in uh, the early modern period, Uh, Many Catholics and Calvinists were living uh, within the same communities. You had divided communities. Other communities would be more solidly Catholic or more solidly Protestant, but often nearby each other. So you have sort of Swiss cheese effect across the south of France, where you have all these different population groups that are Catholic and Calvinist in very close proximity to each other. So anytime there's any sort of outbreak of violence, even urban violence... uh, Nobles start to mobilize, uh, and as soon as one noble starts to mobilize, well, other nobles nearby start to mobilize, and you you have this security problem where uh, everyone feels uh, at risk, uh, and so nobles are using their own chateau uh, and also their urban uh, homes uh, as basis of operation for raising funds, raising troops putting out uh, small armies, uh, and then they start to coordinate politically with other nobles uh, around them uh, and combine into ever-larger units and and field armies. Uh, And operations can often commence within uh, 24 hours of mobilization. So you're talking about very rapid mobilization, very rapid military activity here. And so sieges then uh, become really key uh, at controlling Uh, the space, controlling strategic sites, controlling uh, the regional uh, space here, uh, controlling the major highways uh, that you have through southern France. Uh, And so you have some sieges which are very hasty operations where you have assaults to take uh, cities or small towns or chateaux, uh, and then other uh, sieges, especially of major cities, um, take much longer. A lot of this has to do also with how well the, the communities are fortified, and this is a period for those uh, uh, listeners who might be familiar with the uh, military revolution, this is a period in which the uh, bastioned fortification is uh, spreading uh, throughout Europe, then uh, de- developed um, in the early 16th century, but now was uh, very uh, widespread. And so a lot of the uh, communities that were sizable communities in the south of France uh, use bastion fortifications in this period, some of them permanent, some of them hasty fortifications, but when you have sieges of those communities sometimes they can last much longer example being the siege of uh, of Montauban in 1621 or the siege of Montpellier in 1622 Uh, these are some of the bigger sieges uh, of the period in this region Uh, of course the most famous uh, siege in this period is outside of the regions that I deal with, that's the siege of La Rochelle Uh, In 1627, 28, but these sieges are very important uh, for the nobles because they're they're sites where they can uh, socialize, they can do their politics, uh, and they can also gain control of key uh, strategic sites and population centers.
0: Well, and what one connection that I made when you were discussing those kinds of sieges is this notion of not just not just socialize, but be observed being brave. Right? Mm-hmm. I think of um, one book that I use in class is uh, John Lendon's or J. E. Lendon's uh, "Soldiers and Ghosts," which is about ancient Greece and Rome, okay. and the importance among the the Greeks' uh, military culture for, of actually not just being brave but being observed being brave, mm-hmm. and that, that in some ways their formations and their practices of war were influenced by um, the need to be observed in these in these contexts. Um, and you make that point, I think, in, with relation to those sieges that the the nobles need to be out there being seen in the front lines and doing what they're supposed to do. Absolutely. And uh,
1: some other French uh, historians have pointed out uh, the nobles need to be observed, but they've often focused on the, the monarch's observation of the nobles, uh, seeing this as part of the uh, growth of the absolute state. Some have even referred to this as sort of royal surveillance. Um, and you know, I don't deny that there's some uh, role for that, but you can see nobles, if you look at the sources, look at what they write in this period, both in terms of their, their manuscript and their printed uh, sources in this period. Um, nobles write about what other nobles are doing. So when a noble uh, you know, successfully pulls off a siege or when a noble uh, makes an attack and is seen as very heroic uh, at a siege – uh, launches an assault uh, on a particular uh, redoubt or something that uh, that succeeds gloriously. Uh, this is talked about uh, and often at length. I mean, for months, uh, nobles will be talking about this, sometimes even longer than that. So uh, sieges become real important opportunities for nobles to observe each other and over a, a long period of time, they're socializing with each other in the camps, uh, but they're also observing each other on, uh, you know, Uh, the field of combat there. Uh, In that way, uh, sieges can be more useful than battles, because battles, it's very hard to see what everybody is doing. Uh, Sieges are more orchestrated, they take more time, you have certain particular assaults, Uh, if they stretch for a couple of months, you have a a series of different feint attacks and uh, uh, approach uh, trench um, operations, as well as the the big assaults, Uh, and this makes them very useful uh, to nobles who are wanting to to display uh, their honor, display their courage. Uh, and, you know, this can enhance their, um, their political and military power too because one of the things that nobles uh, do, especially powerful nobles uh, in this period, is they attract a lot of followers. And this is one of the things that actually got me into this whole study in the first place was uh, looking at how patronage-clientage networks uh, really work in this period. And nobles are able to attract uh, other nobles as their clients, part of their entourage, in part by uh, their military reputation. So their displays of courage and, and also of uh, military command uh, at sieges are really crucial for them to attract uh, more nobles to their entourages, become part of their, their loose net clientels.
0: So I think that's a great example of the way this book you know, uses cultural history in a way that is still down to earth. It doesn't go, you know, launch into kind of abstract theorizing or or notion, you know, Foucauldian notions of, of power relationships, but kind of really demonstrates in in concrete ways and in concrete interactions how how culture, how ways of looking at the world, ways of thinking about what's important, um, uh, really influence events on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate that, and um, uh, certainly Michel Foucault is, is very uh, fascinating to read, and uh, I think a lot of his insights can be, can be very useful uh, for uh, military historians, uh, but I was more attracted to uh, one of his very interested readers and critics, uh, Michel de Certeau, uh, who's one of the uh, – he's actually a historian by training, uh, but he became very much a theorist, uh, cultural theorist, um, and Michel de Certeau is known as one of the theorists of practice. So he actually critiques uh, Michel Foucault at the level of his, his notion of, uh, um, of disciplining. Right. And um, Foucault really saw discourses uh, as informing culture. So You had these sort of uh, intellectual structures that would uh, determine how people act. Michel de Certeau, on the other hand, looks at the practices of everyday life um, and tries to see how uh, ordinary people on the ground are able to flaunt uh, the sort of rules of society that Foucault would see as determining how cultural um, activity works. Uh, and so Certeau, I thought, was very useful for looking at people like the nobles I was studying uh, because... Uh, the French uh, state at this time, the, the monarchy, uh, is certainly powerful, and there certainly is a, a notion of cultural norms that it's trying to set uh, in and around Paris, um, but – I found that nobles are able to very much construct their own notions of culture by borrowing some of what they see as important from the the royal court, uh, but also doing other things in their own way uh, in these regions. And so, in that sense, uh, this cultural history of practice developed by uh, Michel de Certeau and other cultural theorists became really useful uh, for me in approaching the sources on warfare in this period. Uh, It allowed me to have a way of thinking through what these nobles were doing uh, that did not obey the sort of um, uh, standard line of the historiography on uh, absolutism and, and the centralizing state, which, which also really saw uh, you know, the, the construction of the royal army uh, going on, depending on Richelieu, uh, beginning in exactly the period that I'm studying. I, I sort of downplay that in part by using this uh, this cultural theory to understand what
0: the nobles are, are doing. Well, this makes me curious what you're working on now then. What's the, what's the next piece going to be? Well, I have a book I'm trying to finish up right
1: now, which is – it's sort of a sequel to uh, Warrior Pursuits. Um, When I first started Warrior Pursuits um – since I was conditioned by the historiography I've been describing, this absolutist uh, historiography, I expected to find uh, that the, uh, the nobles were indeed uh, very self-interested and um, uh, not dealing with larger causes. They were just sort of resisting uh, the centralizing state, uh, but I wanted to figure out, well, how were they doing that? Uh, And the further I got into it, the more I discovered that religion was really important to understanding what was going on. And I managed to work in a lot of the religious uh, aspects into warrior pursuits. Uh, But there are many other dynamics of religious violence uh, going on. Uh, In this period. So, what I do in the new project is I I focus on religious violence and sectarian conflict uh, in the same period uh, and look at how uh, the dynamics of religious conflict are are really uh, shaping the period. So, where the first book, Warrior Pursuits, focuses on the nobles' involvement in civil warfare and sort of the, the mechanisms of waging civil war. The second book really focuses on the dynamics of religious warfare. It highlights re- the relationship between religion and military activity. And that has really not been um, heavily studied for the early modern period, or I would argue at it, it all. Military historians have unfortunately uh, ignored uh, or largely ignored uh, religious motives, uh, religious forms of violence uh, that in certain periods are, are very important in understanding uh, warfare going on. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the second project is look at uh, the period after the uh, the Edict of Nantes as a real continuation of the French wars of religion and then inquire, well, how can we look at uh, religious violence uh, as being a central part of
0: warfare uh, in this particular period? Sure. When you have uh, notions of heresy involved, there's bound to be a complicated um, relationship to violence there. Oh, are, are definitely. There, are there <laughs> – are there witch hunts and things like that that are going on at the same time? or? Uh,
1: there, there are some witch hunts uh, in this period, but that, that is really uh, pretty marginal compared with the amount of religious warfare going on. Yeah. And one of the things I try to do in this new project is look at intersections between uh, religious warfare uh, and other forms of religious violence. Uh, people have looked at religious violence like uh, crowd riots, for example, in, in a city. Uh, Environment or who have looked at iconoclasm often separate those out. They see this as sort of um, movements of social violence. Uh, whether it's peasants or, or urban workers who are doing the violence or clergy who are involved in it, uh, they, they see religious violence uh, as not really being religious warfare but instead as a, a sort of social uh, movement that can turn violent. And um, in doing the work on warrior pursuits, uh, I found a lot of material that shows that uh, the nobles but also the townspeople in this period are very involved in um not just uh, fighting the civil wars, but in promoting uh, religious violence, and that includes outright religious warfare. So this book tries to really uh, deal with that in a complex way, uh, and it's very, very difficult to do that because the, the period is so chaotic, and also there, there are not so many great models for how one integrates uh, religious history and military history.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, great. We'll, we'll look forward to that. One thing I like to ask authors, um, as well is what else they're reading or what else might we look at in, you know, a, a recent book in that would relate to military history that other people would find valuable because I think, um, you know the idea of this podcast is to expose people to to serious scholarly works, and and one one thing that you do when you're engaging in this kind of scholarship is you develop these networks, right? And so that each author I interview is plugged into a, quite a different network usually, and and leads us in different directions, which I find fascinating. So uh, you can sidestep the question if you're if you're <laughs> not prepared, or beg for more time. But um, is there is there something recent that you found especially interesting and and thought provoking? Sure. Uh, I'm actually teaching
1: a class periodically at uh, Northern Illinois University on uh, religious violence in comparative perspective. Uh, and this sort of supports uh, the current work that I'm doing in my own research. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. I, I deal with religious violence from around 1500 right up to the present. And so what I try to do is, is look at studies of the European wars of religion uh, and then compare them with later uh, periods of uh, religious violence including religious violence in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan today. Uh, so just a couple of the books that I use in that course I think would be really interesting for anyone interested in uh, religious violence. Uh, one of them is called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, this is written by uh, Andrew Cunningham and Ole Peter Grell. And it's a, it's a study of the European wars of religion, Uh, through the lens of apocalypse. And uh, it's it's interesting for people who are uh, curious about the Thirty Years' War, the English Civil Wars, as well as the French Wars of Religion, Dutch Revolt. Uh, That's a really fascinating book. Uh, I also use in that course uh, a book that's uh, about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre uh, called Beneath the Cross. Uh, And although that's very much focused on an urban massacre, Uh, Its author, uh, Barbara Diefendorf, uh, does, uh, I think, nicely point out uh, how the early stages of the French wars of religion uh, were um, affecting uh, the politics uh, and the development of violence within the French capital of Paris. Uh, Another one that I, I find really fascinating is by Mark Juergensmeyer. Uh, who's actually a historical uh, sociologist? He has a book called Terror in the Mind of God, uh, which is a comparative study of uh, religiously, religiously motivated violence and, and terrorism uh, in uh, the contemporary. Uh, period so uh, al-qaeda is one of his case studies there but then he also looks at uh, anti-abortion bombings in the united states uh he looks at uh, violence going on in palestine uh and other areas around uh, the world today so that it's an interesting contrast to look at some of these works at uh, uh dealing with the uh, european wars of religion uh and more recent studies uh, of religious violence today and um One of the interesting things about these uh, contemporary studies like Mark Juergensmeyer or um, R. Scott Appleby uh, who deal with religious violence today, many of them actually uh, draw on a lot of the insights from the European Wars of Religion, and they cite the literature from uh, the French Wars of Religion uh, and the Thirty Years' War uh, as they try to analyze today's uh, religious violence around the world.
0: It strikes me that oftentimes you know, the way people talk about Islam today in ter- is in terms of a kind of um, – uh, what I want to say is an ont- ontological model where, where – well, Christianity went through these things hundreds of years ago with schisms and, and – uh, and, but we eventually kind of figured it out how to live with each other and, and be nice. And Sunnis and Shiites will figure that out eventually. So some of it strikes me as kind of simplistic, but it sounds like these books, um, uh, really make some fruitful comparisons. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, realize
1: that the, this notion that somehow the West, uh, is beyond, uh, religious violence. This stems precisely from the period I study in, in warrior pursuits. The notion of the edict of Nantes uh, as an edict of toleration, uh, that ended, uh, the French wars of religion, uh, is exactly what I'm critiquing in, in that book. And in my current work, uh, um, so the notion that Europe has suddenly – somehow or the West has somehow gotten away from problems of uh, religious violence I think is, is misguided. Um, one of the things that Mark Juergensmeyer is able to show is that uh, you know, uh, civil violence during the civil rights movement – Uh, back in the 1960s as well as uh, 1980s, 1990s uh, violence um, over issues like abortion uh, involved religious violence. Uh, There are ways in which one can see connections um, between uh, the motives, the religious motives for violence and a number of extremist groups uh, in the United States, in uh, Western Europe today, in Eastern Europe too for that matter. Uh, So once you throw out the narrative uh, that would say that the, the West is somehow beyond religious violence completely, then you start to see lots of interesting intersections and, and there are ways in which one can analyze uh, religious, religiously motivated groups Uh, violent activities, uh, regardless of religion. Islam is not the only uh, violent religion somehow. Christians can be very violent. Buddhists can be violent, something that a lot of people uh, don't want to uh, explore. But uh, members of any religious community can be violent. The question is how, when, and why then? And so looking at these comparative contexts, I think, is a good way of uh, getting out of the sort of conventional uh, historiographical trends, which would lead us to accept assumptions like Islam is somehow violent and and the West has gotten beyond uh,
0: any notion of religious violence. Right. Peace of Westphalia tops off the Edict of Nantes and we've got Mm -hmm. it all figured out. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm sure listeners uh, enjoyed listening to you talk about your your book. Oh well, thanks for the opportunity
1: to come on uh,
0: the show and to
1: talk about warrior pursuits. This was a lot of fun.